All right, we are live, and uh, this is portion discussion Miketz on the 8th of December, the 30th of Kislev, Shabbat, Rosh Kodesh, Shabbat, Hanukkah, and the sixth day of Akar Kodesh, which is when Shabbat falls on the day before Rosh Kodesh, which sort of makes you wonder how this could be Shabbat Rosh Kodesh as well, but it's that 30th first thing, and uh, I won't press you on. Joshua, go ahead. Thank you. So yes, we are in um, Parashat Miketz, uh, talking all about Pharaoh. Um, this is probably one of the funniest uh, Torah portions in Scripture, because we have a whole sequence of dream in which Paro is talking about seeing various incendiary parot, which are cows, um, <laughs> in his dreams, which is really kind of, it's, it, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, Hebrew humor here. Um, but I think this, this week's portion stands out a lot um, because it's such an opportunity for second chances. Um, I, thinking about it more this, this week, this, uh, it's got me realizing just how many different opportunities there are for um, these great men of the faith to, when they failed previously, to have a chance to do it differently this time. And uh, of course, next week we'll see Judah confronting uh, Joseph, and you know, there's a big to do about his sort of repentance with Benjamin and his opportunity to kind of save Benjamin like he should have saved Joseph. And that's amazing and beautiful. But this week it already starts. Judah's one of the biggest mistakes the brothers made when they sold Joseph. I mean, selling your brother is a really bad thing. But one of the things that they did that's really not justifiable at all was they lied to their father about it. They, according to the sages, they thought they were doing the right thing in selling Joseph. They thought that he was causing division in the, in the, in the family, that he was um, dangerous uh, spiritually because of that. They felt like they had to get rid of him. That was wrong, but that's what they thought. They had a, they had a justification for it. But lying to their father, they had no justification for. If they believed that what they were doing was right, they should have just been upfront with it. Should have said, "This is what we think we have to do." Instead, they tricked their father and led him into a um, years and years of great sadness. And so Judah, Judah kind of starts that to undo that this week. And he comes to to uh, Jacob and says, "Look, you send Benjamin with me." And then what does he say? Unlike Reuben, who says, well, "You can kill my kids if I don't exactly, bring him back." Exactly. Yeah. I would start with Reuben first. It was like. If your son dies, you can kill mine. Oh, that's that's helpful. Thanks for that. I'd yeah. like to be the two sons. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? They're like, wait, so yeah, Dad, are you serious? <laughs> but Judah's response kind of is different. Like what? Kind of a low daughter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, my daughter. Right. Yeah, yeah it's kind of a family awful. thing here. Um, but but Judah, Judah does the opposite. But what does Judah do? He says, if I don't bring it back, you can hold me guilty for his loss forever. And what's amazing about that is that that's exactly what they failed in, the lying to their father. The, the sin there was a failure to take responsibility, which led to a horrible deception, which led to this um, incredible disrespect to their father. But if you see in the story last week in the, in the parasha, where Judah is confronted by Tamar, the language that's used there is the, you know, do you recognize these? Uh, language about the, the articles that he'd given her. It's the same language that was used when they came to Jacob with the bloody uh, right, coat right. of many colors, right? Yeah. Do you recognize this? Whose is this? And 
This isn't your sons, is it? Right. So it's like it's like there's a, there's intentional uh, compare parallel there. So you see that Judah has learned his lesson. He's realized lying to my father was wrong. I should have taken responsibility. So how does he make up for that? He tells Jacob, I will take responsibility. You can blame me. Doesn't matter how it happens. Doesn't matter if a wild animal gets him or, you know, the crazy king of Egypt decides to throw him in prison. Whatever it might happen to be, I'm the one who's at fault. I take responsibility. And that act by Judah, I believe, is 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 really the first part of his repentance. We see the culmination of it next week, but this week is the beginning. <coughs> and it's so important because the sages talk about this idea that, um, you know, Repentance is best marked when you see someone have an opportunity to do the exact same thing and they choose not to. They do it differently. You know, we like to talk, there's a, you know, I think Veggie Tales back in the day, you know, Christianity uh, language. They talk this idea that God is the God of second chances. I don't know that I really like that language. I hope for sometimes a whole lot more than a second chance sometimes. But I think the idea that God gives us um, oftentimes opportunities to undo things is true. That's not always true. We shouldn't. We certainly shouldn't expect that. But we do get an unbelievable amount of opportunities to do it differently, to try again. And Judah makes the most of his. And I think that's really cool. There are some others here, but um, if anyone else wants to jump in, I don't want to don't want to run too long. Well, what's interesting about that, you know, I was thinking about that this week, is that means then that God leads people to temptation. Then, if there is, if He presents extra opportunity for doing the same wrong thing, but as an opportunity in hopes that you would do teshuva, and that means kind of he's in control of both sides. And I think that is really, I think Judaism is one of the only religions that kind of acknowledges that. Like even in bad times, that's still God. In charge. Right. That's God still God that's presenting all of that. That's right. And, and that, you know, Judaism sees it as like those opportunities, like you were just saying, to not do it, of course, but that the very fact that you're faced with that again is... It's still God. Oh, and you see, in the, in the apostolic scriptures, this sort of dual thing, right? So the book of James, it says he doesn't tempt anyone. But then in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we see that like he always provides a way of escape. So I think to your point, it, like, it looks like a temptation, but it's not really because the intent is for us to get through it. And actually, Judaism treats even the Yetzer Hurrah this way. When they talk about our temptations from this internal flesh character, they say, well, God is really the one in charge. He's in charge of everything, including the Yetzer Hurrah. So the intent of the Yetzirah on God's part is not to, to cause us to sin. It's to give us an opportunity to grow stronger, to, to demonstrate our ability not to sin, to, to increase our own self-confidence and, and ability to be righteous, and more importantly, to give us an opportunity to choose godliness, to choose to be obedient to God. Right. So it actually, it, they, they compare him in the, in the Six Constant Mitzvot Vote book, they compare the Yetzirah almost like a, uh, an exercise coach. You know, someone who's, you know, standing next to you, yelling at you, you know, yo, whip, you could do better, I believe in you. you know? And they come off really aggressive and nasty, but actually what they're really trying to do is they're trying to help you become a better, better version of you. And I'm not saying the Yetzirah is really a good thing, but the, but the point is that it's a tool of God to do exactly that, to grow us. And that is the opportunity that, that Judah gets here. Um, uh, Joseph is the same. Before I get to that, comment? Well, it's just in James. Um, James 1 verse 12 so blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed so I, I think the, the, the problem here is that we tend to be tempting and testing, testing. in right. the same yeah, in right. the same yeah. Where are you? 
Is it you? Right there. Yeah. 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 It's strengthening. Uh, it is. Yeah. So the, the tempting comes from ourselves, comes from the world, comes from the, the adversary. But the testing is provided by God to hopefully, and in the case of Daniel, over the top, to demonstrate that we can endure, we can abide. And so much of it, I think, is about similar circumstances. Because going back to what we're talking about the, the sages, like the idea is that you have the same opportunity. And that's, I think, what God is really setting up for, for us here. So with Judah, he's put Judah in a scenario. He's allowed these this this set of unique occurrences to play out in such a way that now he's faced with the same decision again. God's not necessarily trying to get him, he's definitely not trying to get him to do something wrong. He's giving him an opportunity through a set of circumstances to being different. And we see the same thing with Joseph. In the last week's parasha, I thought Rabbi Mike uh, last week, Yishai Fletcher showed, had a great point. He pointed out that... <laughs> When, when the baker and the, and the wine steward come to Joseph and they say, we had a dream, Joseph has the right response at first. Only God can interpret dreams. Then his follow-up is... He said the same thing to Pharaoh. Well, hang on, we're getting there. He says, only God can interpret dreams. And then he says, so I want to tell it to me. It's almost kind of like, only God can interpret dreams, but I've got a special connection, so you know, I can, I can help you out. But with Pharaoh, it's completely different. When he says, I've heard that you can tell all these dreams, what's Joseph's response? He doesn't just say, only God can interpret dreams. He says, it's not me. Only God can interpret dreams. And that, that extra level of humility, that extra acknowledgement of where this sort of superpower comes from was so important, I think, for Joseph. And in fact, it's so fascinating because what happens? So Joseph gets dinged by the rabbis for putting his faith in the steward, right? Get me out of prison. Tell, talk to people for me. And they quote from Psalms, you know, not to put your faith in the prince, but in God, right? Um, which you read this week in, or today in the Hillel. So Joseph, um, he, he tells, what does he do? He goes to the steward and he acts like he himself has this ability to interpret dreams. And then he puts his faith in this man to get him out of prison. With Pharaoh, he specifically says, it's not me, it's God. What does Pharaoh say to him? Pharaoh comes back to him and doesn't say, wow, you're just a brilliant guy. We got to hire you. He says, who's like this guy who has the spirit of God? In fact, he says specifically, because God is with you. Yes. You're the only guy for this job. So it almost comes off like if, if Joseph had taken credit for that, had said, well, I mean, God's the only one who can dreams, but uh, he seems to really like me. I'm very special, so let me help you out here. You almost wonder if Pharaoh would have offered him the position. It's like, that's a great idea, Joseph. So who do you recommend? You know, because we're going to just stick with the, the world of human wisdom here. But because Joseph says, well, it's not me, it's God. Well, then what does Pharaoh see? He sees God in Joseph. Wow, so, God, so Joseph is making himself to be a channel for God, and therefore Pharaoh recognizes that. And I think you get the same language from his father Jacob, one of the really cool references. He, uh, Esau comes up to him, and he's like, who are all these people? And he specifically says, these are the children with which God has blessed me. And Judaism has this really cool tradition of saying Baruch Hashem constantly when they get praise and affirmation and whatever else. And the idea is to recognize that uh, some, some parts of conservative Christianity do the same thing, you know, praise the Lord. You hear that a lot. And you can overdo it, but the point is that, like, the intent behind it is very noble. It's like to recognize that, look, what I have comes from God. And so because Joseph recognized that, Pharaoh recognizes that, and that ends up becoming salvific for Joseph, which is pretty cool. I've got Joshua, and then Micah, and then my mom. Yeah, so basically what I was just thinking is, yes, it's very similar to what you said about Joseph being a channel for God. And I think it's very comparable to Moshe, as he was a channel to the people for God. Right, yeah. Because that's the thing, is he's, a, he's, a, he's in between. And um, the, uh, the concept of a conduit, 
is a term that, that it's basically like you have, like think about like power lines or conduit, right? So you have all this electricity in a, in a power plant and you have a light bulb in a house. Well, if you just hooked up the nuclear power plant directly to the light bulb, that would be a really bad idea. Um, more importantly, if you tried to power your light bulb with like uranium, that would be a really bad idea. So you have a conduit. You have a you have this and, and it actually it's transistor, so it actually lowers the level of electricity as it comes. Um, the the channel this superpower into a usable power for people around them. You think about it, I think that's kind of what God's made us. We're kind of like conduit transistors that help channel what God, the God's goodness and righteousness and holiness, which is too much for this world. It'd be overwhelming. So we become that filter through which God's light shines out in a way that people can receive. They can understand it. They can, they can comprehend it. They can, they, can, um, they can learn from it. In fact, sometimes God intentionally chooses people who are even more weak, so to speak, or more human um, on purpose because he wants to, so that the normal human beings around them go, well, if he can do it, I can too. You know, right. It's true. It's good. And I think that's actually they say about Joshua and Moses. They say Moses was the one to save them from Egypt, but Joshua was the one who brought them into the land of Egypt, uh, land of Israel. And uh, uh, Rabbi Gapel, in his teaching on, on the book of Joshua, he's citing the sages. They say the reason for that is because Joshua's the only one that can lead the people. People look at Moses, they see a superhero. He's amazing. But Joshua, they saw as a normal guy. They're like, well, I can follow him. Paul was the same way. Yeah. Right. Normal guy. It's like, hey, in my infirmities, God is lifted up, and, and the strength comes from him. Right. Micah. Uh, yeah. One thing that always stood on me was that no matter a few short verses, there's, it instantly goes to just using one God when he's addressing Yosef. So in 37 and 38, he doesn't use the spirit of a God, he just uses the spirit of God. Huh, that's cool. So... That's very cool. I, I thought it was interesting that when he's the first time he's talking with his brothers, he says, "I fear God." That's how he closed out their his conversation with them. Mm -hmm. That's all. I, I I can't remember the last time. I, is that how we close our last conversation? I don't think so. Yeah. I, re I rarely use that. I, sometimes with the you know cashiers at Harris Teeter, but <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming. Yeah, I fear God. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's also using that to like explain, like, look, I'm not going to leave you in prison because that's just wrong. Yeah. So, but it's interesting that he, it, it, there are all these little hints throughout the passage that it's really Joseph, and you kind of wonder, like, did the brothers have any suspicions? It doesn't seem that they did. I don't think they did until they saw that they were seated in order. Yeah, they like might have been when, maybe. They, we'll see. They were astonished, but they sense. were pretty scared. So it kind of makes you wonder, like, were they scared because they thought it was Joseph, or they still weren't sure? Anyway, it's very interesting to see. I'm on it. Hmm. Even series, I'm <laughs> unsure. So back to your analogy and Joshua's in it. Both of your analogies on being conduits or power lines from God's holiness to bring it to other humans. That I believe that so many times in the Bible when we conduits bring out a little power to show to the world that people often mistranslate that as being demigods or gods that have taken the form of human beings to test us or just they misinterpret it and I think that that's a problem that people have 
had for, I know, Shaul, not Shaul, yes, Shaul, uh, Moshe, definitely, and I think that that could have been a problem with the uh, Egyptians when they saw that, wow, he can translate dreams, this is amazing, perhaps he's, I know, from the stars or something like that. He's an alien. Well, the thing is, which he was, which is, <laughs> but the important thing I think is, is is their response, right? It's the response <coughs> of the righteous person. Paul and, and is it Simon, Silas, with them? They're like, whoa, no, 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 not, not us. Worship God. Um, you get the same reference. Uh, the angels, you know, Daniel runs into and John runs into Revelation. They're like, no, 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 no. I'm with you. I'm just a servant of God. Worship God. And you kind of get again. I think that same response from Joseph here. Oh, that's not me. That's God. And I think that humility is really important. You contrast that with. Um, was it is it Herod in Acts? They're all he delivers this you know Herodias, yeah. It's a very impressive speech, you know, and everyone's like really in awe and amazed and he's brought peace to as you see the historical background, he's brought peace between these warring groups or whatever, and so it's like they start chanting, He's not a man, he's a god oh, and he starts right. thinking to himself, Yeah, I am I am pretty amazing and then poof mm-hmm. he falls over, dies and worms eat him. And it's like, Yeah, not so not so godlike. <laughs> and I think that's the um and so that's the contrast, right? I so you, hate it when that happens. I hate it when that happens. I know, it's really weird and gross. Um, there's some amazing stories in the Bible. But also, ironically, he was brought back down to the earth. Right, exactly right. Right, right, exactly right. I was going to say, Daniel was very similar in the way he approached it mm-hmm. when they would come to him right. and, and say, it's not me, it's God. Mm-hmm. Every time, you know, and, and mm-hmm. even when they pelted him in with Belshazzar, he was like, it's not me that does it, it's God who does it. Mm-hmm. Even even when the king showed up to look into the pit with the lion, has your God saved you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where did he get that phrase from? Mm-hmm. My God will save me. Has your God saved you? You know, he knew it wasn't. Well, I, was, I was reading this week that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they brought to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's so angry, and they say, he says, "What will you do?" And our God will save us. But if not, no big deal. We still trust our God. Yeah. And so when when they're saved, he says, "What God is this that could do this?" Yeah. I mean, you know. So it, it immediately gave God the glory. Absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> there's more repentance in this week's parsha. We're not done yet. Um, I have a theory because it's been bothering me for years, and I think I finally have a theory for why it's there. There's a lot of references to donkeys in this parsha, <laughs> and we're trying to figure out. You know, they're worried about their donkeys being thrown into prison, yeah, or their donkeys being. Stolen. stolen from them, you know, and it's kind of odd. It's very confusing. They're going to take our donkeys. They're going to take our donkeys. They're going to throw us in prison and take our donkeys. And it's like, right, that's exactly what I'm worried about. You know, I'm going to go to prison and they're going to take, take my, my donkey. My, yeah, you know. If you had a long walk ahead of you, you want somebody to carry something. Well, that's true, but going to prison, I think it nullifies that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like, if it's Worse than imagine, being in prison, they're going to steal our donkeys. It's like, you know, I, I got thrown in prison and they impounded my car. Drat. Well, it's like, like well, it's like the sniper shooter, right? He goes, yeah, they they framed me, they put me in prison, and they shot my dog. <laughs> it's like, yeah, obviously a Texan, uh, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah. Well, he was. He's a really cool Texan. He's great. So in the in the, I have a theory for this. If you read the sages' commentary about the whole sequence when Benjamin gets found. There's actually quite a surprising amount of conflict brewing here that you don't get in the surface in the text. They say that when Benjamin gets um, taken in the Rashi commentary, the, wait, wait, wait. they use some language. Benjamin, the, Benjamin, so Benjamin is, they find the cup, right? So they go, 
They're going to bring Benjamin back. Gotcha. So the brothers go yeah. with him. There's some words and key words in there that um, that the sages play off of, and they say the brothers were going back fully prepared to go to war. Like they're going back thinking we may have to kill all of the army of Egypt on our own to, to save Benjamin. Benjamin. So, and in fact, if you read the Midrash, on next week's Parsha, the Midrash, there's actually all this like kind of like superhero comic book confrontation. They say that like, you know, uh, Simeon and Levi like yell really loud and like shakes all of Egypt and then like Ephraim yells back and makes it all stop and it's like this crazy like and apparently like, the bre- like some of the brothers had like steel chest hair or something like that. <laughs> it's just really crazy. But the reason the reason why they're but I think this is important because the point they're trying to get at I think is that like the brothers were like we will do whatever it takes to bring back Benjamin. Like we have to save him. What's interesting about that and the reason why I bring up the donkeys. We've seen this story before. Donkey Man, who was king of Shechem, that's Hamor. So Hamor was the king of Shechem, 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 right? Hamor means donkey, which is hilarious. I think it's really funny. It means donkey. So his son violates Dina, right? His son's name is Shechem? Shechem, right, convenient. Um, Shechem is, does this awful immoral thing and basically kidnaps this daughter of Jacob. So the brothers... Their response to this is to trick them all and say, look, we won't give up Dina, but if you all get circumcised, that'd be okay. And their plan is to go in when they're all weak and sick and kill them all. And the commentary that uh, Yishai Fletcher had, he he quoted a friend of his, he has this theory, that like Jacob, Jacob's not mad so much because they responded with violence. The issue to him was that they used the the circumcision. They used godliness as a trick to right. deceive these people yeah. and then to, to and again it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier it's like look if you believe what you're doing is right just own it like don't pretend and fake yeah. it out so, my father-in-law was here when we read that and he, he's not a Torah keeper he's a strong Christian but he's not a Torah keeper and he was flabbergasted that the sons would do that right. they would use circumcision in that way and so in this week's Parsha what do we get we get some, a similar situation the youngest in this case is kind of being kidnapped by this superpower, right? I mean, it's kind of very similar, right? And the brothers are going back, and they're prepared to go to war if they have to. And yet, what is their response? It's like it's almost like, well, hang on, wait. Last time, they just rushed right into it. There's only one, one theory, one approach. We have to trick them. We have to kill them all. Instead, this time, they go into it, and Judah takes the lead, which he didn't do last time. That was Simeon and Levi. Judah takes the lead, and he, he, um, he tries to talk through it. It's like, well, first, well, you know, God did tell Abraham that we're all going to become slaves anyway, so let's start with that. Okay, you can take us all. This is going to happen. Don't worry. We'll still we'll take all your stuff when we leave, but for right now, you can have us as slaves. <laughs> Joseph says, no, I'm only taking Benjamin. Well, that's not an option because Jacob, he can't go back without Benjamin. So that's when Judah offers himself. So basically, I think what's really cool in this story is it's almost like you get this repentance from Shechem. Shechem, their response was immediate um, deception and violence. That was the only a way that they even thought about it, it appears. Where this time it's like they it's like we're gonna put that as a last resort. We will do whatever it takes to save Benjamin, which I think was right. Just in the same way that I think it was ultimately good of them to do what it took to save Dina. But they jumped too far too quickly. And I think in this case they really try to take a more measured approach. And I think that that shows a transition and maturity for them as well. And in the end, it pays off beautifully because as it turns out, Joseph isn't um, you know, a crazy king, he's their brother. I, I like what you're saying, and it, it, it sounds right. But what about the donkeys? Well, that's what I'm right. 
I was saying, I was saying it's a key word to get us to remember that story. I think that was my oh. my point uh-huh. behind it. Oh. Sorry, I didn't kind of leave that hanging. But there's certainly a difference in their attitude. They left the brother before. Simeon? No. Oh, yes. Joseph, yes. They left him. Right. And went home without him. Right. And they could have done the same thing. They got stopped on their way out of the city. They had just gotten out of the city. The guy gets there, looks at all the sacks. I'm taking Benjamin. Yeah, you guys are innocent. They right. could have left they their could've. brother again. Again. So there's a repentance there, like you were saying. Absolutely. That's amazing. Well, in fact, even take another level, Rabbi Mike's theory is that if you read just the plain reading of the text, which doesn't really fit the tradition, so it's probably not true, but the plain reading of the text, it doesn't look like the brothers sell Joseph. It says the Midianites came, they take him out of the pit, and then later he ends up with the Ishmaelites, or vice versa, I can't remember which, and so the, the tradition is that, well, one sold him to the other one who sold him to Egypt. So it almost looks more like the, the Midianites show up, they kidnap Joseph, and the brothers just watch. Like they talked about selling him, but then before they could even do that, it's like those guys showed up and they kidnapped him, and it's like, oh, well, that takes care of that. We're good now. And their response, just like we are talking about earlier, was to deceive Jacob. So just like the response in Shechem was to deceive the, the Shechemites, it's like they have this tendency where it's like, well, my, I'm afraid of facing the truth, so the answer is let's lie about it. Yeah. And now, instead, they're confronting Joseph directly. It's like J- Judah's going to own this. And so you kind of, again, get this full repentance piece meal, uh, pieces all coming together. And going back to your, your concept about Joseph, you get another allusion to Joseph's story in this week's text. When Joseph goes to look for his brothers, initially, what, last, last parasha, parasha ago, um, he's, he runs into this random guy in a field, the man. We don't know his name, just a man, who tells him, hey, your brothers aren't here, they went over there, you can go find them there. It's a really weird part of the story. This isn't, I don't even know why it's in there. But it's interesting that in the, uh, well, actually, I kind of have some theories, but in the plain reading of text, it's not obvious. In this week's parsha, the man shows up again. But this time, it's the brothers. The brothers come to the house, and they're all afraid, like, oh, man, like, we're, we're going to... And the man, the same Hebrew, it's the, it's just Ish. In this case, it's Ha-Ish, but it's Ish. It's, it's just a nameless man. It says, don't worry about it. Joseph's going to take care of you. It's almost like there's this weird parallel. Like last time, Joseph's looking for his brothers. That didn't go so well. This time, the brothers kind of unwittingly are looking for Joseph. And both times, this unnamed man just cool. shows up in the story. Cool. Um, so you get these parallels. And I believe, the reason why I brought up the Hamor, the, the donkey, is because I think these parallels are supposed to draw you back to be thinking about all of this, these past experiences. How much have the brothers gone through? I mean, if you read the last couple of parshot kind of don't have the best opinion of the brothers of the children of Jacob. You know, Abraham is top shelf. Isaac is top shelf. Jacob has some weak spots, but for the most part, he is top shelf. He's really good. You haven't seen a lot of positive from his sons so far. And I think this week, it's almost like this culmination effect of, 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 these are godly men. These are good men. They've made some horrible mistakes, but like good men, they are going to fix them and do them differently next time. My mom and then Gregory. I was going to say, there's nothing like living with the consequences of your sin mm-hmm. to change you. Um, and even when there is repentance and even when there's mercy and forgiveness, there are consequences. And yeah. God chooses the consequences, not us. <laughs> and so living with those consequences are something that can, you know, saying, make you bitter or better. And, mm-hmm. and these men were made better mm-hmm. by, by seeing the hurt that they brought to their father and, and the anguish and seeking then to do what mm-hmm. was right. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. That is a really good segue because I read in our, my little Gubnik uh, Humash here that I had never interpreted or, or had seen how amazing the teshuva of the brothers actually was until it kind of literally bulleted them out. <laughs> so it says the first thing why it was so remarkable teshuva was they still felt remorseful 20 years later. 20 years. And then the next point is the fact that this was the only thing they could come up with in their heads when they were talking about, oh, we, we're guilty for something, which meant that they haven't sinned in 20 years. <laughs> there was nothing else that popped into their heads. That's, that's what your mother and I came up with this that week. That is it's unbelievable. Like, Whoa, this is the only thing they could come up with 20 years ago? I made a mistake? Yeah. And wow. then it was the, the last one was just that it was immediately effective in reducing punishment because it's yeah. immediately once they start showing remorse and guilt that Joseph starts to soften a lot more and he speaks a lot less harshly and whatnot. So anyway, those three points were fascinating really cool. to showcase, you know, just how powerful their teshuva was and how much they did actually learn I mean, from their mistake. Yeah, really cool. Teshuva, does that mean repentance? Teshuva, yeah. So it's, it, it means to turn around. Um, shuv is turning. It's just like Saul did, he turned. Yeah, it's definitely a definitely way to see that, yeah. So they, they, um, um, in Judaism, like Christianity, plays off of that and this idea of turning around, doing something differently, turning in a different direction. So um, uh, that root for that in the Hebrew word has to do with turning, shuv or um, uh, return. similar return. I think the word for circle has the same root. Anyway, so it's um, that concept. So yeah, I think it's definitely you get that. You get these different actions because what are they doing? They're going in one direction. And they change what they're doing. They go in a different direction. And you get that very clearly in this, this week's portion. That was really cool. I like that. Um, so one of the things we have talked about a lot, so I'm not going to go into all the background now, but how much Yeshua and Joseph look alike, right? So, um, but just very briefly, you know, Joseph is sold by his, hated by his brothers. He ends up kind of looking differently from his brothers. He's the head of pagans, uh, the king of pagans, so to speak. Um, but his brothers find him, they get re reconciled, there's all this repentance, it's glorious, and what's up. So we kind of see that with Yeshua, right? So, like, Christianity took him over, so to speak, made him all look, you know, European, and then, you know. Oh, blonde hair. Well, yeah, right, blue eyes, and so forth. And then, but later he's going to come back, and the people will recognize him and meet from him as their only son, which is kind of a neat language. You get that parallel to Jacob. Anyway, this week's parsha has another allusion to Yeshua and Joseph being balanced. And this is really cool, because it's a comment that I hadn't heard from, um, read before, I don't think. But. But that phrase where it says that they, he ate with his brothers and they became intoxicated or they became merry, I think was the translation this morning. They drank wine. Um, and what's really amazing about that is, according to the sages, um, Rashi's commentary, they say that, they, um, that neither Joseph nor his brothers had drunk wine since he'd been sold into slavery. Now, for Joseph, this makes sense. Not a lot of slaves get wine, certainly not a lot of prisoners. Um, but uh, at least not in Egypt, I wouldn't think. But the, um, but the brothers, it's almost like there's like this vow of abstinence that they seem to take, um, whether it's because they're depressed or whatever it might be, but for whatever reason, they don't drink wine. But I couldn't help but think of Yeshua, who tells the disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my kingdom. So when does Joseph drink wine again? With them in his kingdom of Egypt. So like you get that kind of that parallel, and it kind of made me, it almost made me wonder, like, I mean, who knows how much the one-to-one is going to end up being, but it's almost like, I wonder if that's gonna if if there's gonna be a time where Yeshua comes back and maybe like, you know, those of us who know what we're looking for, we kinda like 
they know we know who he is. Maybe that like some of the Jewish people haven't quite figured it out yet. I'm thinking they're gonna figure out he's probably Mashiach if he comes flying in with the sword out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. But it might be like almost like, oh, you're Yeshua, Yeshua. Like I didn't I didn't recognize you, but like oh that guy, you know. I mean obviously you're Mashiach, but you know. Anyway, I don't know. It kind of gets that that imagery, and it's so cool to see um, how that again goes back to that reconciliation that we're gonna see, where the brothers and Joseph are ultimately brought back together again um, in in next week's parsha. So. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a loaded parish. There's, There's a lot of stuff in it, a lot of neat stuff. Well, back in when Dave and Joshua was living in Israel, there was a lady who was in charge of re- human resources. I don't know what to call her. Her name is Ina. Mm-hmm. We were talking about all this one day when we were visiting in Israel, and she sees Israel as the state of Israel, as kind of like Joseph and his brothers. They're all being pulled back. They're all being put in the place. They're all at the same table. And as he sends the Egyptians away, it's, it's filtering out the other sources. Because he sends the Egyptians away before he tells his brothers who he is. And so she said, I, I, I see this image of Yeshua coming when all his people are gathered in a place and the outside forces are gone. And I always think of our talk when, when I read this section. Um, he is bringing his people back together based on many, many prophecies. But he wants them to see him as he is. Amen. And, and they will. And they will. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, this portion also has quite a few allusions. Uh, it kind of feels like almost like the story of Esther. Yeah, you know, Esther becomes queen. Joseph kind of becomes king, mm-hmm. sort of. Um, both become second most powerful, I think, kind of interestingly mm-hmm. enough, in a way. Um, and there is kind of that parallel between like this, you know, devast- this, this sort of um, potential for devastation for everybody, and then, then you get uh, in the end, they end up saving the people. And of course, ultimately, how is salvation? We'll fully recognize, well, the, the, the leader character, Esther and Joseph, identify themselves as being Jews <laughs> or Hebrews. So you kind of have that, a lot of those similarities here. Also, I think going back to our end times discussion, when we, when we read um, the beginning of this parasha, the, the name of the parish is Miketz. Miketz. And it has to do with the end. At the end. Um, uh, and I'm not sure if it's the same root as the word for summer in Hebrew. I think it might be, because um, I think Kites is the word for summer. Which is kind of funny, because if you think about it, it's like it's the end. Because it kind of is the end, because the, the next stage is all the fall holidays. So you kind of get, it's like the end of the end of the year, so to speak. If you think of Rosh Hashanah as the beginning of the year. But that's kind of funny, too, because... We have kind of oftentimes, if you read, if you do prophecy type stuff, you kind of feel like, well, we've we've seen like Messiah fulfilling Pesach and and doing things remind us of Shav- we have a Shavuot miracle and whatever else, and it's almost like we're in the summertime, and it's like we got to get to the end. We get to the end of the of the end. That's the last days. Um, but you get that almost in this passage as well with the whole like you know the famine time, um, seven years gets used a lot. You have a seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. We've been reading in our Zadi class these, these talks about Paul saying, like, oh, it's going to be everything's gonna be peace and calm. Everyone's going to be all relaxed and it, like a thief, like a flood, like, a, you know, all this. It's going to be sudden. And, um, and you kind of get that same imagery here. I mean, you know, you've got yeah, everything's great. It's the greatest it's ever been. And all of a sudden, everything falls apart very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, who's kind of, who comes, who's, who steps in, who's sort of reigning in the midst of, of all of this, ultimately set up his kingdom, so to speak, and the pagans, the, the people, the, the non-people the outside of God's people, 
follow him, it's Joseph, right? He kind of has that sort of messianic they're character role. They're looking for a Jewish Messiah. They're looking for a Jewish Messiah. That they're kind of forced to serve, which kind of, again, parallels yeah. this messianic age, this rod of iron right. that we see from, from him as well. You, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, it's the revealing of the Jew who's second in command that kind of brings it all together. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you continue beyond that, You've got brothers and Mordecai, right? The brothers, as well as Mordecai, are then joined with that Jew in, in second command. And, and there's, I wouldn't say a joint ruling, but they're together going forward. In the Esther story, Mordecai is now working with Esther to send out stuff so that they can you know, fight and, and do all that kind of stuff. And in the other case, the Jews are being given the best of the land, you know, Joseph's mm-hmm. brothers, best of the land, and their father is introduced to Pharaoh, and everything's cool and wonderful again, just like, you know, it's, it's your typical, they tried to kill us, God mm-hmm. saved us, let's eat kind of thing. Right. You know, I love it. And, and I think that, too, that it's, um, I think it's poignant that the, the heroism in the story is identifying with that, that ethnicity, identifying itself as God's people, and the right. importance of that. Um, and also, I think, to the unity of God's people. I think um, Yishai Fleischer this week was talking about the story of the Maccabees and how the, the problem, really, with the Maccabees and how it begins, we don't really get from the, the storybooks, but how it begins is actually kind of like a civil war between Jews because a lot of Jews are being Hellenized. They were finding the Greek culture to be very appealing. And they had, and they had kind of they had turned away. Yeah, right. Still, they had turned away from Judaism. And so the Maccabees' response... Is, is not just in response to a foreign power trying to force them from keeping their faith, but also in response to their own people who had abandoned God in favor of all this Greek stuff, and, and in the end were willing to fight over it. So you ended up having this in, in, um, internal conflict, and, and so Yishai Fleischer's point was to say that, like, you know, that's, that's really when, the, that's, that's how you defeat Israel. You defeat them with division. You know, you don't, you know, think about like the Holocaust and these conflicts in the Middle East where all the Arab countries attacked Israel and so forth. And it's like, that never works, like really. Because ultimately, the Jewish people band together. They, they face an enemy, they get unified, yeah. and they win. Yeah. When, when, there's, when there's no specific enemy, they're, they're all over the place, and like they are here in America. Oh, and that's exactly his point. His point was to say, like, so today, what do you have? You have people who are like, well, we don't. It's not all Jews that are bad, but just the Jews that live in the West Bank, you know, or not even all of them are bad, but just the settlers, or just some of the settlers, or or Israel itself is is just Jews are great, but Israel that's bad, you know. And you get, and the sad part is, you can get some of that inside of Jewish Jewish people. Um, I I hesitate to say Judaism, but I guess it's somewhat true too. There are some weird sects that have problems with Israel and so forth. But the point is, he was lamenting the division. Because his point is that like, where, where the people of Israel become unstoppable is when they're united. And you get that in picture so clearly in this week's um, Torah portion that it's like Joseph's goal is to make sure there's a real unity here. He, he's testing them, like we were talking about earlier, testing, testing them because he wants them to be committed to Benjamin, to be willing to, to sacrifice themselves if necessary to save Benjamin because that's the unity that was missing with him. Um, and I think that you see that today in our own in our own lives. And I think what, what did they say? The te- second temple was destroyed for baseless, baseless hatred. Baseless hatred, because there was division. Because the people of Israel did not um, love one another. 
God destroyed the temple and scattered them with the intent that they would become unified, that they would come back together again, and they would stop uh, seeing themselves through the lens of division, but seeing themselves as all of God's people. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that is really almost like one of the biggest mitzvahs that we can do in this day and age is to bring that unity to God's people. It's really important. Um, and it's, it's challenging because we're all different and scattered and confused and there's all these different issues. But I think that it's so fascinating that like the Joseph story ends with reunification. I mean, you talked about it. You know, the Mordecai and Esther story ends with, you know, Mordecai becomes king over this sort of second, the most powerful man in the kingdom with the queen on his side of this foreign power, the world's greatest power. They defeat all their enemies, get to steal all their stuff. It's fantastic. It's like, it's got this, it's very much this, um, you know, uh, you know, fantasy level uh, great. But this story ends differently. This story doesn't end necessarily with like, there is wealth and whatnot, but it's still in the middle of famine, or it seems to be at the beginning of it anyway. The story, what's the, but what's the thrust of the story? The triumph of the story is they're all get together again. That was the good ending. Yeah, including their father. Right. So when they're all brought together again, that was the best that could happen. And I think that that's kind of what God is ultimately doing today. He, his desire, I think, is to get all of God's people back together again. Which, if you think about it, in a world in which there are like 19 different Protestant denominations, uh, you know, two Jews, three opinions, and how many different, you know, sects and groups and whatever else, it's like, um, you know, to bring all of those pieces together would be extremely difficult or seem to be. Um, but we know as we read through, uh, we read and read in Revelation, we read towards the end, it doesn't talk about like these groups like they're different. I don't know. They come off very monolithic. And I think that God will do that. I think he is going to bring us back together again and we're going to have that unity. We're moving very quickly through this week's portion. I'll just, I'll just throw out there that Yosef is 30 when he stands before Pharaoh. And I am also 30. And I just think that it's interesting when scripture tells us like the age of people, like you know, you have King Josiah, for example, they point out how young he is. And, but we, we you don't hear that with everybody, like at what age a certain amazing thing that happens to them is you know what age they are. But we do see that here. And, and it's and with Yeshua. Yeshua. Well with Yeshua, exactly. But I I, I think it's it's inspiring for, for a young person reading this. I mean, it's certainly inspiring for me to think that how much has transpired in Joseph's life and how much he's learned, how much he's grown, and how mature he is at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the commentary was talking about how it seems almost a little bit audacious that Joseph would throw into the conversation or the interpretation at the end, like, well, you need to appoint somebody as a ruler of everything, and, and you know, here's how you should do it. And, you know, the, the commentary suggesting that isn't that a little forward of just to be throwing out like a recommendation to the king of Egypt? He's kind of designing a job. A job for himself. Oh, by the way, and it's but but then the commentary goes on to explain how in in Joseph's wisdom and in the wisdom of the interpretation that came from Hashem, that was the point. The the, the fact that the interpretation related to the recommendation of storing up for the certain amount of years. That was the thing that all of the other interpreters missed. They Mm. were getting very hung up on, or at least the commentary was suggesting, they were getting very hung up on the fact that it said that they stood together, the seven cows, the seven fat cows, and the seven lean cows, and it's like, Mm. well, how could the seven years kind of stand together? But anyway, all that to say, it sounded like that was actually the crux of the interpretation, was the recommendation. That was the only purpose for it, was 
you need to do this, this is for you to do. Therefore, it wasn't really Joseph giving himself a job necessarily, it was really, that was God's plan all along. I like that, that's very good. And it's interesting because you see the, to that end, I think that also makes the other interpretations less appealing because they all end with like, well, you can't do anything about it. I mean, it's a dream, so it's, you know, because the other interpretations traditionally, they say, well, you're going to have seven daughters, and then they're all going to die. It's like, well, that's a great, inter- <laughs> what's the point of that? Like, why would God give me this dream, which is so I can start grieving now? I mean, like, what, you know, you know uh, name them all really sad, depressing names? Like, why are we doing this? And, um, and it's kind of like, whereas Joseph's dream, to your, Joseph's interpretation, to your point, solution. Well, you, you're supposed to respond to this dream by doing this. Um, and that does seem so much more to fit the way that God speaks to us. You know, it's like, um, even even as we're reading through all of the um, all of the different end time stuff today, it isn't just so that God can tell us the future. That's not the point at all. In fact, very specifically, it seems, um, or rather very noticeably, are the lack of details. You know, we've got all these events that occur, but we don't have a time, we don't have a place, we don't really have names. The handful of names or times we are given are really obscure and kind of vague and you know, who's Magog, you know? I mean, like, all these different types of things. And in, instead of being like, you know, uh, you know, it would be a lot better if, if they put, like, the actual name of the guy in there. That would be helpful. <laughs> but that wasn't the point. The right. point was, what do you do about it? I'm not telling you the future so that you simply are aware. But how do you respond to that? And I think we see that in Paul's writings over and over again. Like, or Peter, for this week. Yeah, you, how then should you live? Yeah, you know now, so what are you going to do about it? You should live a holy life. You should be ready. Not ashamed of coming. Wow. Right. And see the same thing here. I think Joseph interprets the stream and he has a solution for it. Um, I think we get a similar thing from Jacob. I thought it was kind of cool this week. Um, the uh, First Truth of Zion put out a little commentary on this uh, uh, parsha, And they highlighted Jacob's response to things and kind of contrasted his sense of sort of like depression and worry uh, at the beginning when they come back without Simeon versus the way that he responds at the end when they go they take Benjamin back to Egypt. So at the beginning, they come back and like, you know, He's like, all these things have come against me. He has this very victimized attitude. You know, he's bereaved. Um, he doesn't want anyone to go and do anything. That's it. We're just, you know, we're going to stay here. Of course you can't take Benjamin because he's going to die. That's just how it's going to go. And at the end of the story, you get a different thing. He's like, okay, fine. You have to go take it. And then he, um, in the first of society in commentary, they point out that, like, he gives them stuff. Here's all these things to take mm-hmm. to Egypt, some gifts. But then he ends with, and may God grant you favor in the eyes of this man. And so the point was that like he, he combined his action with faith. He yeah. sees that like, well, ultimately the solution for my fear and my anxiety and my depression and all this stuff is God. I can't do it. God can. Amen. This isn't new for Jacob. We see the exact same thing happen when he faced with Esau. In several parashahs ago, yeah. he does the exact same thing. He realizes, oh, Esau's coming with 400 men. Oh, my goodness. So he sends gifts, just like he's going to do with Joseph here, sends all these gifts. And then he, he says, he word last time. right? Yeah. Well, then he, and then he prays, he prays, and he says, you know, if you know, asks God to save him from Esau, saying, like, you sent me back here, you promised that you'd bring me home safely, so I need you to protect me now. And you kind of get that same parallel here. And I think again, thinking about repentance, I feel like it's almost like Jacob taps into something he did right before, because you kind of see in between. We had the story with Dina where Jacob is mysteriously absent. He kind of doesn't say anything. We have the, the, the situation with Joseph. He's, he's depressed and sad, but you don't get anything from the text that he, he responds in any way. He doesn't seem to do anything about it. Of course, maybe he didn't think he can, but um, then, then, in this, then, then later on, we get the, you know, Simeon's taken, and again, the same thing. There's this, 
is a victimization, this almost resignation to my life is just going to be hard. And instead of responding with like, well, we have to do something about it. And you see that sort of that, that transition. It's almost like Judah kind of wakes him up there at the end. And you see that, that kind of Jacob of old come we're back. All gonna, we're all going to die unless we go do this. <laughs> right. The hard days are, are brought up again when he meets Pharaoh. Right. Let's see that next. Well, you, I don't think it's wrong for jo- Jacob to recognize his life's been a hard one. Yeah. But I think that the difference is how you respond to that. And I think in, the, in this week's parasha, you see both sides of Jacob. The one that sort of says, well, I can't do anything about it now. And the one that says, well, let's do what we can and let's ask God to help us. And that's the kind of person I think that we, we have to strive to be, especially yeah. when there are challenges. Morgan. Joshua, I thought it was odd that the gift seemed to be a giant basket, mostly filled with food. Yeah. Honey, some fruits, nuts, since they are dying of starvation. <laughs> That's a really good point. That's cool. I like it. I, uh, I think that there is some tradition that says that the, the, the people that, that, that they go and get food initially. Now, by this point, I'm not so sure about that because it seems like they really are running out. But initially, they go and get food kind of almost not because they really needed it, but because they didn't want to look like people who didn't need it. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, pulling up. Yeah, I've heard stories of like the CFO or whatnot who drives the old junker. It's like I want people to know how much money I actually have. Um, whereas in this week's parasha, it may just be that, they, that that's what they did have that was there. It's interesting that you mentioned that, though, because in looking at that, it also kind of parallels what we see in the book of Revelation when it talks about... Um, there's the four horses, right? Mm-hmm. And the black horse comes. The black horse represents famine. Oddly enough, it says, don't touch wine and the oil, mm-hmm. which is kind of a weird thing. It's kind of bizarre to imagine famines that don't affect certain things but affect other things. Mm-hmm. And in the ancient world, that probably would have been very unusual. I mean, in this case, I'm not sure exactly what makes nuts well, be more likely to grow. Well, the, the bottom line is you can't live on what they sent. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what, true. What they sent was really nice to have. It's a good gift you basket. Eat, you eat pistachios all day, every day for a week, you're going to die. Well, you may can eat it, but your animals can't. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So grain is necessary. I mean, they obviously have donkeys. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, right. Exactly right. Um, and they, uh, But I almost think, though, that think about the famine thing, just going back to that for a second, it really teaches you, I think, so much about how we are in the end times, because that actually is totally possible today. As we see, like, global weather patterns and whatnot, it's like, well, some part of the world can be in horrible famine. And that's it. There's no avocados. That's it. We have no avocados. There's none. Potatoes are gone. Romaine lettuce. Yeah, romaine lettuce it's is gone. contaminated. But then, all, but then, you know, we're still, you know, even a few years ago, the price of grain skyrocketed because there were all sorts of different factors that factored into this. Famines in certain places and other types of things. Different governments were doing things. Grain skyrockets. Wine costs the same. Oddly enough. You know, grapes didn't change in price, but grain did. And I think you think about that with Revelation, it's like, that's kind of cool. Like, like we live in an era, kind of frightening, but we live in an era in which that's actually realistically possible. It's kind of like um, you were talking about, you were quoting the rabbi of the, the, the was it the, the Kabbalist or whatever else, talking about um, the Hasidic, talking about how like today's era, it almost, it's like all this technological change and everything makes us more open to Messiah right. because you can see like you can see things that would look like miracles that you could only imagine before make yeah. sense now like TV or you know the ability for people to travel places it, really fast it is or, possible that everyone on the planet could see something happen somewhere so the it's idea possible. that you know God sees everything makes sense to us now right, right. and it's kind of the same thing so you've seen this 
those prophetic pieces coming together. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, with the wine and the oil, isn't it also supposed to be the, the, the clash between the lower class, no more middle class, the lower class mm -hmm. to, the, to the rulers? So they'll have the, the wine and the oil, which isn't necessary for, well, isn't necessary for substance, and there'll be more of a clash, the clashes politically. I think it's a good interpretation. Socially, that's what I had heard. You can see that. that. Um, it, it, it really doesn't balance out. There shouldn't be a reason why there would be oil. In, I think it's, I know there's a lot in, um, <clears throat> Revelation that is really actual, but that may just that might be one of the minor uh, prophetic things, just an, um, an analogy of the clashes, where the, the poor will get poorer and the rich won't be as um, affected by the calamity of starvation and, mm. and the war and the pestilence. And it, it's possible, Suzanne, but the thing that we want to always be careful of is that when we allegorize or spiritualize a physical reading, we can never be totally sure, yeah. right? That's, that's the thing we want to be careful of, is, is that there is definitely something God is trying to tell us. And my opinion would be that that is able to be known with clarity and definitiveness. Whereas, if we spiritualize it, that may also be true, but, but, we, but we can't know it. I, I totally you know agree because I don't like to go by the you know the two house theory at all. That's why I'm here because I realized very quickly on that it was um, anti-Semitic. Okay, so and that bothered my heart and it made me sick to my stomach and I said I I can't do this. I'm, I can't take on an error in my life. But I've been reading and praying and studying all the different wonderful people that are doing Revelation that do the one seed of Abraham. And one of the things from the Seed of Abraham Ministries in Merritt Island, uh, Love Israel and the Torahclass.com, they have been talking about that there's going to, that they feel that that's just the disparity between the class structure and and it's it's it could be it's just what they're thinking because they're taking everything literally they're not doing the two houses at all they hate that it is, it is an arrow there's only one seat of Abraham but what they're saying and it's I've been praying on it and I know I'm just a little person that's been deceived many times in her life but um, Somehow the high rulers and the captains and all the people that are in power falsely and are doing these bad things to all the little people and the good people uh, that want to keep the Torah. Um, sometimes there's, somehow they're going to get their wine and their oil. That's what I'm just saying. <laughs> they're going to, they're not going to be as affected because they're somehow going to have the resources to still not be as affected with famine. On a literal level, that's could, I, I could follow. Could be. And I think, and I could think, be. And, and that's could the point. Be. It could be. It could and there's be. nobody in this room that can say, "No, you're wrong, Suzanne." And there's also nobody here that can say, 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Correct. I it know could be. And and because, because it's not what the scripture says. It the scripture mean. simply says there will be oil and there will be wine. And I think the, scripture, say who's gonna have it. the scripture does talk about this idea this week in, in Yeshua's comments that like in that day, because of the spread of lawlessness, the love of many will go cold. And I think you do see that. So to your point, Suzanne, the attitude behind that, the, the negative attitude behind that, where you see people become grotesquely wealthy but are unwilling to share, because I think that's really the problem. Um, that's where you see that. And I think that you definitely get that idea. And today, you see it today. How many people it's, it feels like there is a lack of compassion or love on others. Now, there are also people who are amazingly wealthy and they're amazingly philanthropic. Right. Yeah. Because there really is no such thing as grotesquely wealthy, right? Mm. Maybe it's just the spirit just, of what you have with it. It's just wealthy. Yes, because I think that if you read, if you, if you read throughout the, the, the scriptures, you see like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I mean, Jacob's sending stuff off to Egypt right now. I mean, he's obviously quite wealthy. Um, and it's not bad to be wealthy. But, but the key is how do you respond? May we all with be that? cursed with it. Do you do you do you do you use it as a blessing from God that's God's given you to be a blessing in this world? And, I, and that doesn't mean necessarily that there's a percentage, although I think there could be make a good argument that there should be. Um, but the point is that what you do with that, how you respond to that, because even poor people can be miserly. I mean, oh, that's yeah, the thing you yeah. yeah. So. But I think that if you look at this week's parsha, you do see, um, like, you, you definitely get, like, uh, you get that disparity. You can see some of, like, that, that difficulty and whatnot. And Jacob, at least the, the traditions, is trying to be careful with that, recognizing that, you know, there is, they call it the evil eye, jealousy. The jealousy is very dangerous. Oh, and trying to respond appropriately in light of that. And they, you know, that's something that Judaism talks about a lot. They learn their lesson. Hezekiah gets people from Babylon show up, and he goes, "Check out all of the wealth in my kingdom! Isn't it amazing?" And and the prophet comes back to Hezekiah. He's like, "What have you what done? You They're going to come back and take it all." That was a really bad idea. So that arrogance is something Judaism is very um, cognizant of, and very careful whenever they. So they, they 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 encourage people who have wealth to not flaunt it, and then of course, obviously, to be very generous. So yes. Can I skip ahead of next week since we won't be discussing it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Some of my favorite passages is Genesis 50. And Joseph, as you said, they're all together. And the, the happy point at the end of this parasha is that they're a family. And they're all together. But after their father dies, they get afraid again. And they're like, Joseph could really be bad to us. Because he's still in power and we're not. <laughs> but I love this, what Joseph says. It's some of my favorite. Um, Joseph says, do not be afraid, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant for good, in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. And I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And I just, I love the fact that Joseph truly, completely forgave. And, and bore no ill will and took on all the love of his brothers that his father had. A true Messiah. Well, yeah, it is. And I think, true Messiah. But you have to also say how the reason. I think the reason is so important. Joseph does that only because of his faith in God. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's sometimes the mistake. I think you, you, if, you, if you see, um, you know, uh, TV shows or things talk about people from a, from a godless perspective, forgiveness is extremely difficult. And sometimes it's impossible. It feels so wrong. 
I mean, it's almost like the only way that people can forgive, it feels like, is simply because they don't want to be haunted by it anymore. I can't think about mm. that, so let me just pretend like it didn't happen, or let me just let me just try to, you know, forgive that person, meaning let me just put the bad feelings aside because I can't deal with it. And I feel like that's kind of almost like your only response you can have without God. But God gives a different perspective, and I think that's exactly what Joseph does. Joseph presents it with that act of faith. He says, God meant this for good. Of course I can forgive you. It's almost like Yeshua. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. It's like you don't even know what you're doing here or why. Amen. Um, but I trust that God is doing this, and it's a good thing. It's happening to me, and therefore I, I, can, I can actually feel good about the whole experience. Not just to say, I don't hold you guilty, but even to say, what happened to me was good. It was meant to be. And, uh, and Joseph's transition in faith that we see throughout the parashot is really phenomenal. I mean, he, he starts off with quite a bit of, of belief in his dreams, but um, and, and along the way, it's like he just gets more reinforced in that faith in God. You know, the temptation with Potiphar's wife, which some say is actually a temptation of trying to get, find a shortcut to become king, right? So it's like, well, hey, she's really powerful. I'm a slave. This could be, you know, uh, one of those things where you land on the square in the board game that says skip ahead five spaces, mm -hmm. right? It's like the way we can we can cut some things out. Um, but he chooses not to do that because he trusts God that's going to be obedient to him. He makes a little slip up with the steward where he tries to trust in man, learns that lesson, doesn't do that next time, and God blesses him. And you see how he, that faith is reinforced throughout the way. It's amazing that someone who goes into prison can somehow still believe that he's supposed to someday be king. <laughs> you know, but he does because he trusts God. And I think that faith of Joseph is really, really meaningful and powerful to us today. And because of that, he's able to forgive his brothers. Amen. And because he does give us the age, we see how long it took for him to get there. Because we have an idea of how old he is, was when he was, he was 17. thrown yeah. into the pit. And so then he says, God's showing, this isn't a year or two. This isn't, you know, he's letting us see that there's, sometimes we have to wait a while for what God is has told us is going to happen or what God's showing us. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's one reason that the ages are important in it. Yeah. And it's, it's a good reminder that not, the plans of God are not always linear. It's <laughs> not like, you're just going to slowly get better and better until someday you're king. It literally, he goes down as low as you can go when you're just in prison. <laughs> and then it's from that that he jumps all the way to being viceroy of Egypt. So right. it, it's, it's a good reminder that your, your current circumstances are not necessarily an indication of what they're going to be. Or <laughs> what, what did you say last week in class? Come. Past results or no? Guarantee of future performance. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely Isn't right. that what the... Investors always say. Joshua, you're familiar with that, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But I think that's also because, why? Because you recognize that God's the one in charge. I think you see that over and over again in throughout the scripture. We see it in real life today. I mean, how many times? It's like, it's actually, it makes such a good story. We have movies made out of it, right? You know, the guy plucked off the uh, uh, grocery floor, delivering, uh, put stacking groceries, becomes a Super Bowl winning quarterback. You know, it's like, that actually happened. And uh, and the, you see these stories, and it, to us, it feels like they're magical. It feels like they're impossible. Um, and that's what makes them such great stories. But I think if you think about it, it's like, well, God has all this power. You know, He's the one who works out all the circumstances, so any of this can happen. I love that story from the Sixth Constantments vote, where they run out of oil, and the, the daughter of the rabbi is like, well, what can we do? And he says, light the vinegar. She, her response is, well, vinegar doesn't burn. He says, if... God can make oil burn. Why can't he make vinegar burn? <laughs> like oil doesn't burn because it's oil. Oil burns because God lets it burn. 
you know, and that, that, that level of faith I think you see from, from Joseph, and that's just really, um, really inspiring in, this, in the, in the parsha that he, ha- he sticks with it, um, even though it seems like, it seems completely hopeless. I mean, to your point, like to be <laughs> in the, to be in not only a slave, but a, a prison in a slave place, it's like, wow, that's, that's really bad. Yeah, and, and look, we, Morgan and I were actually just talking about this last night because there is, there is a tendency, one way that you could look at the story of Joseph is kind of just that magical story that like he just had favor and it was just destined to, everything was just going to fall into place anyway, so he really just needed to be patient. I see. He just waited it out. Like Midas. Like mm. Yeah, like he, like yeah. he couldn't help but be successful, right? right. And yeah. you almost see that a little bit with Jacob too. Like one could see it that way, that story. But then I don't know. There's just if you just read it more carefully, I think it's the scripture very obvious that like Joseph was a very hard worker. He oh, was yeah. Obviously, an extreme a man of extreme integrity and of character. Like there's so much that he put into it that God was able to use and bless him. Absolutely. Very much so. So it's. That, again, going back to the age thing, because I I get just very inspired by that. Like that is a really good reminder for us young people to like. We need to be very hard workers so that God can do the same things for us. That He can bless through our hard work, the work of our hands. Well, if you think it, about it, it, it all comes from Him. Absolutely, and if you think about it, Joseph's successes that God uses are because of what he did the right thing when there was no benefit to it. Yeah. I mean, he inter- he takes care of the steward and the wine the wine guy, and he interprets the dream. Maybe he sees it as an opportunity, and he kind of does, but at the same time, it's like he did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It takes years later for that to pay off for him. You know, It's like he was, the only reason why he even got that opportunity, it appears, is because he was so trustworthy and such a hard worker in prison that the prison warden puts him in charge of the prison. You know, and it's like, well, he only got that because he did the right thing. It's like, he's, you know what, what prison he's in? He's in the prison of the slaughter leader, the, the butcher, the king, the chef of the uh, leader of the butchers, because he worked hard in that guy's home. The guy probably didn't have him killed when his wife <laughs> gave this uh, false report about him because he's like, hey, I really liked him. He was a hard worker. He did good. Let's give him the benefit, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Um, and it's like, and he ends up marrying his daughter, which I think is really funny according to tradition. So you get like, but, so it's like throughout the story, Joseph is constantly doing the right thing, whether he's getting rewarded for it or not. And you see that in last week's parasha. And he says, why? Because it's wrong. God, I can't sin against God and do this thing with you. And it's like, because of that attitude, he's constantly rewarded, but, um, but it takes time sometimes. And but the, if he hadn't been doing those things, if he'd just been, to your point, been patient, been like, well, eventually my luck's going to turn, <laughs> yeah. then he would have never been in place to receive that. And I think that um, that's something that you, if you study even secular sources, they say this, you know. Um, uh, Digging the Well Before You're Thirsty is a book on networking. It's the same concept. It's like you have to be friendly and good to people and, 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 and meet people and know them before you need a job because you're not going to get a job from somebody, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so. I always say, I really love that tie. Give a job for me. You know, that's just not going to really work. Whereas if you already have that relationship established in advance, and it's like, well, you know what? I need somebody, and I think you're the right person because I've seen that character, and I've seen that this good personality and the good ethics that you've shown and so forth. And I see the same thing with Joseph. He invested in himself throughout this time by being obedient to God when there was no benefit so that in the end, God was able to use those things to, to bring him the reward that he promised him. Yes, so back to your... What God wants to burn will burn uh, story, I guess. That just goes to show that 
back when science was not really well known about how everything works and how God designed our universe, people were more trustworthy on God, which kind of makes the what God wants it to wants to burn burn sound more authentic than today where it is scientifically impossible for <laughs> vinegar to burn because science says so. Which I think is a downside to having more knowledge, just a downside. Because right. we kind of lose some of that faith in God when you know how things work. Well, I think one of the things that's beautiful about... Um, what did you just say? I was just going to say, I, I agree with you. But in that story about the, the rabbi's daughter, she knew the vinegar didn't burn. She already knew the science, which is what makes it even cooler. Well, I think, and I think that your point, like, I think there's a way to do them both, but you have to do them both. Like, if you lose your faith in God, you, you put your faith in science yes. or man or whatever, whatever it might be, um, philosophy, economic systems, we saw how that worked with, you know, Marxism and communism. Got a plan to work that didn't work so well. Um, the, the point is that, like, all these, um, they all fail, but trusting in God can be different. Rambam, I believe, or Ram, it's rather Rambam or Ramban, I lose which track was one talked about the importance of going out and just enjoying nature. Not because nature is peaceful and you know, how great it is, but because it was a chance to meet God. Yeah. Because God created it. Be God made it all. And to recognize that. And if you think about it that way, then the science and stuff can be actually assisting to your faith. Yeah. Um, then you can experience it in a different way. Say like, wow, that God holds all these little atoms together and causes the protons to spin in a certain way. And, and then, you know, and then every now and again, we love how we find something that makes no sense at all. And it's like, well, that's cool. I guess God knows how that works. Um, is it a particle or a wave? Um, but the point is yes. that, uh, yes, <laughs> right. Um, but so going back again, talking about Joseph, like that faith that he has. One last thing about Joseph that I thought was kind of cool. He, uh, he becomes king at 30. 30 is this amazing age that kind of keeps getting repeated. 30 is an age for priests to, take up, to become priests. 30 is the age that I believe that David becomes king. I believe that David's first named king at 30. Yeshua starts his ministry at 30. Um, all these things about 30, um, which I think is kind of neat that you see that, again, that parallel between Joseph and Yeshua, when kind of like they become well-known, so to speak, is at 30. Any final comments on this week's portion? I'm thankful for the stories of Joseph. Absolutely. He's amazing. We're getting to the end of Genesis. It kind of makes me sad. It's one of my absolute favorite books in the whole Torah. Uh, Torah. I love the stories because there's so much you can, there's so much ways to apply them to your own life. You know, I think that's one reason why God put them there was so that we could see godly men and what they do and hopefully learn from their examples. Alrighty. Mr. Martin, would you close with us in prayer? Sure. We are thankful, Father, for these uh, examples that you've given us in Scripture. We pray, Father, that we would not just know them, but we would learn from them and apply them and become more like you show us you want us to be. We pray that you would uh, bless us with a wonderful rest of our Shabbat. And sings in the name of Yeshua, our risen Savior and Messiah. Amen. 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 You are correct. Second Samuel 5. David was there. Yeah, I was trying to remember where that was. I wouldn't as fast as you.